Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. We want to give folks a heads up as we go into the holidays that uh, we're going to be taking off the week before Christmas and the week before New Year's. I know when we uh, took off for Thanksgiving, Todd, you had some uh, angry listeners show up in your yard. Yeah, don't call me, don't write me. Yeah, no, they showed up here. I was like, the Beatles. That's what I felt like out here. I've been watching that Get Back. I've been watching that Get Back documentary. Pretty good, huh? It's pretty fun, yeah. Today, we're going to be uh, focusing in on carbon capture and storage, what it is and, and why it's needed. Excellent. It's a pretty complex topic, but one we felt like is important to to dig into, especially given the fact that net zero targets by 2050 are going to mean that there's carbon dioxide that has to be you know directly removed from the atmosphere. So before we dig into that, Todd, you got some uh, reasons for hope for us? I do. They finally seemed that they've fulfilled one of my wildest dreams in being able to strike cow poop with lightning. (laughs) (laughs) This headline really did catch my eye when I came across it, which is why I picked it for the reason for hope today. And it does literally say, zapping cow dung with lightning is helping to trap climate warming methane. And I was like, well, what could be more hopeful than that? Uh, But in reality, this Oslo-based company called Into Applied is testing this technology. It's like a plasma technology at some sites. And one of the one of the test sites is a 200 cow dairy that they're basically, they use a manure scraper to collect all the poop and whatever from the barn floor and they deposit it in this pit and they run it through what they're calling the N2 machine, which is the size of a standard shipping container, which is pretty cool. And they're using nitrogen from the air and a blast from a 50 kilowatt plasma torch, forcing it through the slurry. And evidently that process, the nitrogen in the air and the electrical charge locks methane and the ammonia emissions in and doesn't allow that process to, to take root. So it's, it's a pretty cool idea, I think. The independent test they had showed that it reduces methane emissions from the slurry by 99% and ammonia by 95%. So pretty substantial. So they're hoping to re- release a commercial model 2022. And they don't know how much it's going to cost yet, but they said the capital investment might be, would be similar to that of a medium-sized tractor. Also, the byproduct is like a nitrogen-rich fertilizer, which is pretty cool too because, you know, obviously agriculture uses a lot of fertilizer, so you kind of get two, killing two birds with one stone here. Pretty exciting stuff. That's yeah, very exciting. And it, and it sounds like, you know, it's probably way cooler than any science experiment you did in high school. I always had this dream that I was going to, put a bunch of batteries in our basement and hook up this wire up to our flagpole at our house and that I was going to somehow capture because we always had these lightning storms, right? And I was going to capture all that energy and these batteries. I'm sh- I'm sure everybody's glad I never got that thing off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I think every young young boy has like one part mad scientist in there. Oh, yeah. An inventor trying to push the envelope. And most of it just involves like probably burning your house or the barn or something to the ground. Yeah, you know th- I mean? there's, yeah, anything with uh, with fire, electricity, sharp <laughs> objects. <laughs> so 
what is you know carbon capture, also called carbon dioxide removal, and and why is it needed? I think maybe it makes the most sense to kind of start with why it's needed. The reality is, even if we halted all you know carbon emissions today, we have way too much CO two up in the atmosphere. According to NASA, this past April CO two concentrations hit 416 parts per million in the atmosphere. Folks that are familiar with CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are probably familiar with 350, which is often cited as a kind of not to exceed threshold. Clearly 416 is above 350. And and if we sort of look back even further, pre-industrial revolution, we were actually sitting closer to about 280 parts per million of, of CO2. So the reality is the past, you know, 70 years, we've put a lot of this stuff up there. And even if we stop tomorrow, which we, we need to stop as quickly as we can, the reality is there's going to need to be a lot of it that's that's pulled out of the atmosphere to avoid temperatures rising beyond what scientists say is safe in terms of maintaining a stable climate. Right. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has modeled, you know, hundreds of different climate scenarios. And nearly you know 90% of those that have roughly a you know 66% chance or greater of keeping warming below 2 degrees celsius rely on some form of of carbon dioxide removal hmm. yeah and in addition to that you know we've talked about this on other episodes the reality is while you know decarbonizing transportation and the power sector are things we can do today tackling you know aviation things like steel and cement manufacturing, the, the day will come, but we're not there yet. And so carbon dioxide removal also provides an opportunity to kind of neutralize those emissions between now and when those those technologies to, to decarbonize those areas are more shovel ready. Right. So it seems like no matter how kind of new in some ways this, this technology is, it's going to be something that's going to have to happen in the future to kind of meet our goals. Yeah, it's it's exactly. It's not a it's not an either or anymore. It's an and. I can tell you in looking into this, it's not simple stuff. I mean, there's a lot of different technologies that do a lot of different, you know, a lot of different things here. It wasn't necessarily easy to like sort through this and your your brain starts to get a little mushy around some of these acronyms and you're like, "Wait, what does that mean?" So today we'll be focusing on engineered carbon removal, uh, specifically direct air capture and storage and uh, bioenergy uh, capture and storage. Direct air capture, which I think the acronym is DACCS, pulls CO2 directly out of the air. uh, And it can remove CO2 by using a liquid or solid filters, and it binds the CO2 to it. It's kind of like a big air scrubber. And then the second... Categories of bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, which is basically like growing crops that produce, you know, large biomass and you burn that biomass and then capture the CO2 as you do it. Right. So basically the crops you're growing naturally pull the carbon dioxide out of the air. And then as you burn that to create heat or electricity, you're pulling the carbon out. Yeah, that's that was kind of my understanding as well. I mean, those are sort of the two primary buckets. What about? Uh, I know you're a, a big fan. Your most of your four hundred one k is invested in clean coal. You, you want to talk about that at all? Or? 
You know, I did look, and I know we're not going to go a lot into that today. Uh, we could do a whole other episode on just carbon capture on uh, power plants, whether it be natural gas or clean coal or what have you. You know, if we're going to get into the business of trying to capture carbon, you know, I could see a lot of positives in trying to do it for coal, right? Because obviously we're not going to necessarily get it to go away as fast as we want it to. And maybe this is a, a stopgap measure to to try to make it, you know, a lot more efficient and a lot less carbon intensive than it is. You know, maybe what's the word? Oh, I can't. I, my brain's not working. I mean, that's not new. <laughs> <laughs> it's when you placate someone, basically. You know, maybe maybe that's a way to placate them on this as a way to kind of to get them to entertain the ideas we want them to, you know, to consider, right? By doing so, they kind of have to admit that this is a problem. Yeah, I mean, there's a fundamental issue beginning with just the branding that, you know, some some coal company came up with when they were audacious enough to pair the words clean and coal together. I mean, it's like, right. you know, it's pairing the words like pizza and low carb together. It just, uh, it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of bullshit from the beginning, but knowing coal and natural gas need to phase out, it's certainly going to be beneficial if we can reduce the amount of emissions they put out between now and the time that we mothball all these things. And so exactly. we don't want to use it as, as an excuse to continue to pull out fossil fuels. So right. there's a balancing act there, but I think you're right that it presents an opportunity to put less CO2 up in the atmosphere. And, and I think that's a win regardless of how you get there. Right. That's exactly. That's that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the next question, natural question with carbon capture, carbon removal is, you know, how how does it work and how does it, how do the different methods compare to one another? And the main buckets are really looking at, you know, the cost of the technologies on a per ton of CO2 basis, their ultimate kind of potential if they're scaled up to remove carbon permanence, which is really critical. And that is just when evaluating each of these solutions, we really have to look at how well they do at, at locking up the carbon for good. That becomes really applicable when you think of things like reforestation and the fact that you know you can have fire come through and burn down the trees or pests and whatnot. The other kind of two categories that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that they use to really evaluate a sort of chief benefits of each technology and then kind of the the concern side. So the sort of pros and cons. So if we look first at bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, the cost today ranges on the order of 100 to $200 a ton of CO2. These costs you know, may not necessarily mean a lot. So I think the best way to compare them is to look at more natural carbon sinks and, and what folks might be more familiar with when they're you know purchasing things like carbon offsets. So $100 to $200 a ton is still fairly expensive when you look at the fact that you can you know go online and buy a natural carbon offset that's tied to let's say reforesting you know a tropical region in the Amazon for you know 30 or 40 dollars a ton. So it's definitely you know well outside what people be accustomed to paying if they're trying to let's say buy carbon offsets for their their flight. Right. The potential for, for bioenergy carbon capture and storage is really limited just based on the land that's available to, you know, to grow this biomass. 
you can see how it quickly becomes something that competes or could compete with production of food, right? So they have, in the initial analyses, said that it has a potential of, you know, like a half to 5 billion tons of CO2 capture per year. And again, that number may not mean a lot. As we get into this, it will hopefully mean more. When you talk about the permanence of the CO2 storage, it, it is really high, assuming you're using something like a saline solution that you're injecting back into, let's say, an old oil well or repurposing it to be used in something like building materials. You can really tie that CO2 up and be confident that it's, that it's not going anywhere. Hmm. The, the chief concern with bioenergy capture, carbon capture and storage as I alluded to, is that it's it's land intensive, right? If you are focusing in the the initial ramp up at just taking advantage of existing like agricultural harvest residues or you know timber harvest residues, that's not problematic. But when you look at the need and the scale of it, you can see how you again start to potentially become competitive with food, and there you want to be you know more careful in terms of how you scale it. The chief you know, benefit of the technology is that it it produces energy, right? So, you know, probably everybody's familiar, at least in some capacity, with the idea of, you know, biomass energy, you know, burning organic matter for energy. And and in this case, that is a it's a helpful byproduct. And, you know, if we think back to some of the discussions we've had around integration of renewable energy resources and, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels, this actually provides a nice solution in that it could serve as a baseload source of power, right? You have a big stack of, you know, hemp or bamboo or what have you that you're going to burn and and you're able to regulate when that happens. So I could see beyond just the energy production potential benefits as you look at getting to 100% renewable in our, in our power sector. Yeah, for sure. When you talked about direct air carbon capture and storage, the cost component is a little bit higher. It Again, it ranges a lot because we're really moving from bench testing these concepts into the first kind of commercial scale plants. Costs range on the order of $100 to $300 a ton CO2 captured. The potential in this case, because it's not reliant on, you know, acres to grow biomass is really in theory kind of limitless, right? Anywhere Mm. you have access to energy and access to a place to inject the the CO2 when you're done, um, you can put a you know, you can put a plant. When looking at the permanence of the CO2 storage, again, similar to bioenergy carbon capture and storage, it's it's high. The big concern really for direct air capture is that it requires energy instead of producing it. And for it to be effective in, in removing carbon from the atmosphere, that, that energy needs to be low carbon energy, right? So you has to be powered by, you know, wind farms or solar or what have you to really accomplish what it's intended to accomplish. Right. The, the benefits for, you know, direct air capture are that it, you know, has a really small footprint when, when compared to bioenergy carbon capture and storage, as well as other natural carbon sinks. And it's really easy to track the amount of carbon that's removed. Mm. So I think it's worth touching just briefly on the fact that when you have CO2 that you've captured via either one of these technologies, there's a lot of different ways that you can deal with that CO2 you know, you can, you can store it as a, as a gas. There's a, co- a company called CarbFix that takes CO2, puts it into a saline solution, injects it into 
you know, an area with basalt rocks. And over time, you actually create these carbonate minerals that are stored on the ground. Mm. You can you can use it, you know, potentially for creation of biofuels for, let's say, the the, the aviation sector. And there's also, you know, discussion of taking the CO2 and integrating it into things like building materials with the idea that then that creates a market and, and a potential demand. And I, I sense there needs to be more debate about any of these proposed solutions purely because of the scale that we're talking about. It'd be one thing if this was this was small, but it's not. It's huge. You know, we're talking about removing CO2 emissions that have been put up by the, the globe over the past 70 years. It's not a small amount. And so it seems to me that one of the places we need to really be thoughtful about, in addition to selecting the mix of technologies that we'll use to pull carbon out, is is how best to store that carbon, ensuring that, again, it doesn't escape and, and that we're not creating other problems you know, along the way. Yeah, that storage piece really interests me a lot. And I almost think of it as it would be cool if there was a way that you could store it sort of and and whether you're planning to store it for all time or just somehow control the release of it so that you know you don't have to maybe store it forever but that it gets released at some manageable rate over time yeah i i think there there certainly needs to be a debate and it needs to be a global you know debate and but you can see and i read about areas where you know it can become problematic and where right. you know you're using the the co2 to augment you know, oil extraction to push additional fossil fuels up out of the ground. That seems to kind of defeat the purpose. Exactly. You know, I think that's why it demands a thoughtful conversation about what we want to do about all the CO2 that we're going to, we're going to have at our disposal. Building materials is an interesting thing to me that I didn't realize that they could store it in. And it's like, I wonder, is it like, well, if it, how would it ever get released again? If it was in building materials, would it be, you know, is it like, would it have to burn to release again? Or would it, you know, is it like asbestos or something? Like if you broke, you know, if you start breaking it up, would it release? But interesting anyway. For sure. And and I'm, I will never claim to be a chemist. I didn't sure. do that well in, in college chemistry. But there's, there's definitely some important questions that we'll need to answer going forward before this really scales up too much. And I think that leads into really, you know, what are the, what are the potential risks I mean, we know we need to take carbon out of the atmosphere. We know that if we stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow, there's way too much. But, you know, we don't want this, first and foremost, to undermine mitigation efforts. You know, we talked about on the episode where we looked at carbon offsets, that risk as well, and that we can master this technology, but in no way can it become an excuse to keep pulling fossil fuels out of the ground. We really need to be focusing on maximizing our mitigation efforts and ramping up carbon removal. Otherwise, I mean, you're you're literally betting the future on these technologies that you know arguably are still kind of partially proven. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like you know going out and and uh, buying a car, you know, with the assumption you're going to get your your bonus. You know, it's a yeah. it's a risky proposition. Pulling a little, getting a pool at Christmas vacation style, or exactly going Clark Griswold with it. <laughs> and and then you know the other that I alluded to really is a risk is is land use transformation, making sure that we're cognizant of the fact that this could be something that competes with food production, 
and right. could lead to less biodiversity beyond understanding kind of the chemistry and, and the complexities of these capture and storage methods. I think the, the scale is really yeah. the biggest challenge for me to wrap my head around. And I know you did, you know, a little bit of look into kind of what needs to be done in terms of carbon capture. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the scale is massive, you know, assuming we meet like emission reduction goals, right. In parallel to this globally, carbon removal will need to be around 10 billion tons by 2050 and 20 billion tons by 2100. I guess another way of looking at it too is uh, according to the EPA, the average US car emits about five tons, right, of CO2 a year. And the first commercial US direct air capture plan under construction in Texas has the ability to capture 1 million tons of CO2 a year or basically the emissions from about 200,000 cars a year, which is a lot. I mean, that's that's lot. great. But when you look at needing to get to 10 billion by 2050, you can <laughs> you start to see it's like it'll take 10,000 of those plants to remove that amount of CO2 we need by 2050. Yeah, you're talking right? as many uh, direct air capture plants as you are, uh, you know, Starbucks yeah, locations. You'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll have them on every corner. Yeah, it, it is it is crazy to think of the the scale of all this. So I think that leads into really the the next natural question, which is like you know how do we make this all happen? I think in reading through the research that I did, there's some real emphasis on you know starting first with the targets for carbon dioxide removal. You know how much is needed and by when, and and then obviously then that informs the discussion of of who should be responsible for it. Right. Which I think obviously quickly will become a, a political one. But, you know, in my mind, when you look at those nations that have contributed the most historically to CO2 emissions and, and did so the earliest, they really should be leading the way in helping helping to fund these efforts. And what Definitely. I mean is, you know, when you look at historical emissions the leading contributors are, you know, the United States at about 25%, the European Union at 22%, and then, you know, China, while they're leading in terms of average annual emissions, they're still only at about 13% of all CO2 that's been that's been put up into the atmosphere. And so, right. It f- feels like the countries that have benefited the most from, you know, this fossil fuel economy ought to be the ones that are that are helping really scale up carbon dioxide removal. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to look at it, to look at total historical, to get the accurate picture of, of who should be kind of stepping up. And, and I'm sure, you know, like any good political debate, there'll be a lot of hemming and hawing about this stuff, but you can't you can't expect it to fall to the countries that haven't contributed that much to climate change and, and don't have the means. So in reading through kind of the research and analysis that's been done on on carbon capture and and what policies are needed to get it jump started i mean there's really sort of two buckets the first is as you can imagine ramping up r&d funding to help bring down the the costs of it and and there are countries like you know the uk norway and others that have that have done some of that already the other you know bucket is really having the kind of the financial incentives whether those are in the form of tax credits or related incentives to help provide the you know the financial certainty that's needed to to go out and 
build and, and develop these projects, whether, you know, you're talking direct air capture or, you know, bioenergy capture. There's been progress here in the U.S. The uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, there was about $12 billion that has been earmarked for a combination of building out the infrastructure needed for carbon capture, utilization and storage for, you know, for R&D and for permitting provisions. So that's, that's really encouraging. Yeah. And, and secondary, you know, in the, in the Build Back Better bill, which probably all getting tired of us talking about, there is a, a modification that's been done to 45Q tax credits. Basically, they're proposing to deliver fully refundable direct payments to qualifying, you know, carbon capture projects. So uh-huh. amending, I guess, that tax credit provision so that if, you know, you and I went out tomorrow and we built a, a plant, we'd be eligible for those funds. Cool. And then it's my understanding they've also modified the dollars associated with the tax credit. So they're proposing $180 a ton for carbon storage that takes place through direct air capture, and then $85 a ton for carbon storage that takes place via carbon capture at, you know, industrial and and power generation site. So, you know, in, in looking at some of the analyses, I mean, really taken together, these two bills could lead to, in one paper, I saw a projection of a 13-fold growth in carbon capture between now and, and kind of the mid-2030s, which is super exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I also think there's a real opportunity to look at naming these legislative bills a little bit better. <laughs> it's kind of like a fortune cookie fortunes, you know, I feel like, yeah. you know, a lot of them are pretty mediocre and you could do a better job. You know, you know, we're at the point where we're looking at everything, right, to try to get this done. And even though something's more expensive like carbon capture, you still have to kind of pursue that direction, right? It's kind of like when you're looking at a car that does zero to 60 in four seconds and you want to get it to do zero to 60 in three seconds. That second difference costs a lot of money. And I think that's what we're dealing with here is when you're, you're looking down every avenue and you're trying to get to the last bit that you can get, it's going to get more expensive. And it doesn't mean you can't, you, you're not going to do it. You kind of have to, but it might just be more expensive. Yeah. And, and I think we've talked about in previous episodes with, you know, the revolutions that have taken place with, with wind and solar, you would hope with using a similar formula of, you know, putting forth a lot of money for R and D and putting the right financial incentives in place that, you know, you can drive a similar set of cost reductions and and bring it down to the point where it's it's competitive. And to your point, we're going to have to do all of the above. I mean, it's yeah. not a question of sort of picking favorites. It's going to be a little bit of everything, you know, because the reality is you can only, you know, fit so many trees out there. You can exactly. only have so much land to grow biomass. Yep. You can only st- store so much carbon in the soil. So it really is going to be an all of the above type type solution. For sure. So I guess that leads us into what can we as individuals do? And I don't know about you, but I I think the first sort of opportunity is really consider, you know, purchasing offsets from companies that are that are pioneering direct air capture. There's a company called Climeworks that has an operational facility actually located in Iceland where they're partnering with another company called CarbFix that I mentioned earlier, and they're capturing that carbon and then putting it in a saline solution and putting it down into the you know basalt formations 
you can actually go to their site and buy carbon credits. This technology is still new and so it's not cheap, but it, in my mind, if all of us are putting a few dollars their way, that's just helping you know, accelerate the, the scale up of this technology. Definitely. And, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, Christmas time is around the corner and, you know, if you're looking for gift ideas for that special someone and, you know, what a, what a better way to say I love you by, you know, purchasing some, uh, some carbon offsets for their stocking. Don't you think, Todd? Oh yeah. It sounds like, oh, let me run that by Chelsea really quick. Actually, <laughs> let me call Amy real quick and see what she <laughs> You know, maybe you get, maybe you get Logan started early, you know, and, you know, have him set aside Thomas a train engine and, you know, embrace uh embrace some carbon credits in, in his in his stocking. He deserves it. He doesn't understand the spirit of Christmas. Every time we go out or he sees something on TV, he's like, Dada, you buy me that? You buy me I'm like, what do you think this is? I'm gonna cut him <laughs> off. Cold turkey. I'm going with withdrawals. <laughs> the second opportunity is wait for it. Supporting the Build Back Better bill, oh, <laughs> which yes. is currently currently in the Senate. Again, just like all the good climate provisions that focus on credits for electric vehicles and incentives for renewable energy and home efficiency, there's also all these great things in there related to, to carbon capture. And so we'll have the uh, talking points on our website, resources to help you with that. But again, I think at this juncture, getting that bill across the finish line and getting the president to sign it would be monumental. And I, I can't really think of something else that's that's more important here, you know, in the States. Definitely. So we've spent a whole episode here talking about carbon capture, and I feel like in some ways we've just scratched the surface. But as we indicated earlier, we are going to revisit the topic of, of natural carbon capture in, in the new year. In the meantime, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. That's climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Podcast.